Hi, I'm Arlen Walker and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland and today I have got an overview for you guys. I have got an overview of the Hot Circle RPG, which is a fan hack by Casper Duderek of Burning Wheel by Luke Crane and um, all of the, the other people that are involved in Burning Wheel. So let us take a look at that. So here we go, Hot Circle RPG. It is laid out in a, um, uh, a Zine format. So it's um, 28 pages, including a cover and a character sheet, but it's only 14 pages of PDF because each, each page of the book is essentially a half page of one um, landscape oriented uh eight and a half by 11 page of pdf so contents we have a whole thing about campaign creation we have a do me just a sec we have a um section on character creation tests which are obstacle tests or ability tests i think about linking tests together artho which is the narrative meta currency advancement and running the game and all of that comes together in a pretty short package so the campaign creation discusses the idea of um what you should um if you haven't read burning wheel itself this may be useful for thinking about how you ought to create your burning wheel um world the, the the world that things are going to go into especially in this hot circle rpg you don't have a list of life paths and settings and all that sort of stuff the way that you do in burning wheel itself and so this gives a sort of brief overview of what you should think about so genre settings and in this case settings refers less to the kind of general world and more to the specific idea of what do people do how do they live in burning wheel itself setting is used as a description of a group of life paths so for instance there is a setting that is um the noble court setting and that is the setting where all the nobility are involved in essentially so you have settings, you have factions, which is just things about um, who has power within these settings and which settings have power, and situations. And the situation is essentially how um, this is very similar to what a um, professor of mine who uh, taught uh, creative writing called the idea of uh, pictures with lean. Yeah, this idea for short stories that um, I don't think came from him. I, I mean, it was probably taught to him by somebody. But this idea of um, what is something that kind of has not necessarily happened yet, but is definitely going to happen. Some some event that is is um, in in the happening in the works. It's going to occur at some point. So, for example, the idea that, um, you know, uh, kind of like the idea of Chekhov's gun, right? The idea that there's a gun on the wall and it's going to be fired by the end of the story. A um, 
a picture with lean is a moment within the story where you see the gun on the wall and you understand that there's an event coming, right? This is very similar. Um, and this is, I think, really good advice for running a pretty narrativist game that you want these moments with lean. You want kind of events in the works. Um, so for instance, in my, um, my sword and planet setting i have um in one of the kind of micro settings within that larger setting um there is a city that has some interesting stuff going on in particular there is a regent who is um in power currently and then there is a rightful heir to the throne who is being sort of maintained by the regent this rightful heir, the, the, the princess, is almost about, is about to come of age. And so this is the lean, right? That at some point in the very near future, the question of whether the regent is going to stay in power or is going to give up power for the rightful heir is going to come into play. And odds are good that the player characters and the player characters picked up on this right away and involved themselves in the scheming and the events and all that sort of stuff to um, to to uh, take advantage of the the lean that is provided. So that has to do with that's suggestions for how to create a campaign. Then we get into character creation. Characters are built out of beliefs, instincts, traits, conditions, life paths, assets, and artha. So beliefs are, I believe in X thing, so I must Y thing. That's um, more structure than is provided in Burning Wheel itself, and I like the structure because it gives a good, um, gives a, a good information about writing beliefs. What's what should your beliefs look like? Um, and you have three of them. Every every character has three beliefs, or every player character has three beliefs. NPCs may not have the full three beliefs if they're not very important. Um, instincts. You also have instincts. Instincts have three forms. There are I always, I never, or when, trigger, I, then I do something, then I do X. Um, similarly, good providing of structure or something that in Burning Wheel itself can be, especially without the codex. I, I found reading Burning Wheel itself that I didn't have a good sense of what would be a good, um, a good belief, a good instinct, all of that sort of stuff. Um, whereas the codex, the, the second book, in its modern form, Burning Wheel Revised Gold Edition has... Gold edition revised, which is one book, and it's red and gold. And a second book that is blue, that is the Codex. And the Codex, a lot of the Codex is just um, guidelines for running the game and advice about running the game, and it's really useful. So if you're going to get Burning Wheel itself, I would totally recommend getting both books. All right, but we're talking about Hot Circle right now. So Hot Circle, people call me trait. That's what traits are like. Uh, distinctive signatures that remain stable and illustrate who the character is through personality, behavior, and appearance. You also have three of those. Conditions are temporary traits. They essentially are used to represent either 
um, temporary bonuses or temporary penalties based on the situation. Um, you start off with no conditions. You can take a condition at the end of each session, and you also take conditions during play. So, for instance, if you got um, hurt in a sword fight, that would be a condition. That's how we would represent that difficulty. Um, then we have life paths. Life paths work sort of like they do in Burning Wheel. In Burning Wheel, what they do is they give you um, skills and traits and all of that sort of stuff. In this system, you use the life path itself. So it works a little bit to, to resolve tests. So it works a little bit like um, Barbarians of Lemuria. Essentially, your life path will have a die rating, and each life path, you um, when you start the life path, it will start at 3d6. That means that every time you try to do something that is related to that life path, you get to roll three six-sided dice. Four, fives, and sixes are successes, and sixes explode. So, hypothetically, you have an infinite number of successes you could get, but on average, you'll get, you know, one to two successes, maybe three with a, an explosion or something like that, um, with a starting life path. If you are trying to do an obstacle test that you do not have a relevant life path for, you get to roll 2d6. Same rules apply. Sixes explode and four, fives, and sixes are successes, but only 2d6 this time. And if you have a life path that actually hinders you, you can choose to use that life path to roll a single d6. Now you get some other stuff for doing that. You get um, Artha. The, the points, the, the narrative metacurrency that is also how you advance your character, you get some Artha for choosing to use the less optimal life path. So, um, but the life paths are at the core of how you solve problems. Assets are, um, as it says in the book, concrete examples of the possibilities suggested by character life paths. Um, a life path gives you a sort of broad thing. An asset gives you something specific. And some assets are permanent and some are temporary. So you have um, temporary assets like, you know, gear or a contact or permanent assets like skills. So a skill gives you a flat bonus in rolling a test that is related to that skill and you're assumed to always have that skill. Whereas with something like gear, if you need a piece of gear to do something, you can roll uh, an asset test, a gear test, to establish that you have that piece of gear in the fiction based on your life path. But gear is not permanent unless it's a special item, so you have to establish it for every scene that you need that gear. And some stuff, this requires a little bit of GM discretion. So, like, like for instance, if um, characters were going to get into, like, a, a sword fight for a judicial duel, what I would say is, okay, you can have a generic sword for free, or you can use a gear test to establish that you have a specific sword that is yours, that is special somehow, and that is giving you a bonus, basically, because of its familiarity to you. Anyway, we have an example character. Casper, the friendly ghost, has three beliefs, three instincts, three traits, a couple of assets, and two life paths, both at 3d6. And that gets us into the way that the game actually plays, which is you use obstacle tests as well as ability tests. 
Obstacle tests are how you generally do things in the game. And they have an intent and task. The idea being that you have um, the player character, um, or the player of the character, rather, says, here's what I want to achieve, and here's how I'm going to go about getting it. Based on that, assuming that there is a meaningful consequence to the test, the Game Master decides on a difficulty, an obstacle that is um, going to be the difficulty that that test is made at. And there's a table of difficulties. It starts off basically with what can an average person do, what can a journeyman do, and what can a master do. Um, and then it has modifiers based on, for instance, like hindering traits, things that make the obstacle easier or harder to overcome, that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of good advice here too. So there's fail forward and let it ride. Fail forward meaning that um, if the test is um, failed, something needs to happen, right? The situation has to change meaningfully. And that goes along with let it ride, that you can't just make a test again either way. The game master can't just call for the same test again, and the player can't ask to make the same test again when they didn't fail or even when they succeeded. That you make one test that defines how an intent and task are either achieved or not achieved. So, for instance, if you're trying to pick the lock on a door, you can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to make tests until I get it open. It's a matter of, you know, if you fail the test, maybe you, maybe even you get it open, but the guards come around the corner right at the same time um, or something like that. That's very failing forward, right? That's a, that's a classic example of failing forward. Anyway. Then we do the task roll based on your life path rating. You get to roll a certain number of dice if it is helpful. Otherwise, you get to roll less dice like I talked about. You also get to build up your roll with other things like helpful traits, helpful conditions, having skills, that sort of thing. Um, and then you, um, after building the roll, there's a certain amount of re-rolling that can happen. So there's advantage and disadvantage. If you have advantage and you fail your roll, you get to pick up all the dice and roll them again. If you have disadvantage and you succeed at your roll, you have to pick up all the dice and roll them again. And then there's some other situations where re-rolls apply, for instance, with a compromise. Um, basically, you can say, um, if you're in an opposed test, you can propose a compromise and if that is accepted, you can use that to gain a reroll, essentially, um, to force your compromise rather than choosing to just accept the opponent's intent and task completely. Um, anyway, then we get the, the whole you know, outcome, and it's pretty simple. If you're greater than or equal to the obstacle target, you succeed. If you are not greater than or equal to the obstacle target, you fail. Um, and again, that, that gets back into the, the fail forward, the task and intent, all of that sort of stuff. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have completely failed to get everything you want, just that the intent and task are not um, fully achieved. Anyway, 
Then we have ability tests, which are resources tests, circles tests, wises tests, and deeds tests. And these are all used, um, they work a little bit differently than an obstacle test, but these are basically used to establish things in the fiction. So a resource test is um, used to establish that a character has a piece of gear. A circles test is used to establish a contact um, or to make contact with someone. A wise's test is used to uh, establish whether or not a character knows a useful piece of information. And a deeds test is used to establish an after, uh, 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 essentially a flashback, the, establish that the character did something in the past. And part of the idea is that deeds tests are used for things that do not need a full obstacle test to, um, to decide. So, for instance, if you're if you're in the midst of a scene and everybody's having a good time and all that sort of stuff, and then something comes up that was sort of a minor issue, rather than flashing back to it, you just call for a deeds test and establish that um, this thing happened or this did not happen the way that the character um, or the player would hope. Then we have linked tests. Linked tests are very simple. If you succeed at the first test, you get to make the second test with advantage, and so on. You fail at the first test, you make the second test at disadvantage. And the idea is that this is how you can combine things together when you have a larger intent and task than just one role. And linked tests, I assume you could use them for ability tests or for obstacle tests. Um, or for a combination of the two, right? You could use like a wise's test to establish that a character knows something and have that information feed into an obstacle test to operate on that knowledge, right? Anyway, Artha, there are two kinds of Artha in Hot Circle rather than three like in Full Burning Wheel. There are fate points and there are are persona points. And fate points and persona points each work a little bit differently, but it's much simpler than in Burning Wheel itself. You have a nice table that explains what you get fate points for. Generally, you get one fate point for doing something suboptimal with a trait, with a belief, with an instinct, with anything like that. Um, there's also a section here about taxing, and taxing is basically that if you um, overextend yourself on a life path, you may get in the position where you can't use that life path to um, for obstacle tests or for ability tests. Um, oh, it says only can't make an ability test using that life path, not obstacle tests. So, I'm sorry about that. I didn't read it closely enough. Um, but basically, the idea being that you need multiple life paths that work together to solve your problems. Otherwise, what happens when you fail, generally when you fail an ability test, the result is that that um, uh, life path becomes taxed. And therefore, you can't use that um, life path to uh, do anything with ability tests. With, with one um, ability test, one type of ability test, that's a, a, a specific thing. So if you fail a wise's test with a specific life path, you cannot use that life path for a wise's test until you have um, paid the tax. 
that is uh, basically to say that, for instance, if you did a wises test and failed and then did a deeds test, you could still use that life path to do the deeds uh, ability test. So conditions, conditions generally work um, pretty, pretty clearly. Um, basically a minor consequence hinders one obstacle test, a major consequence hinders three obstacle tests. You don't necessarily have to use them on three consecutive obstacle tests. You can use them on one obstacle test. Uh, and then save it, and then another obstacle test, and then another obstacle test later. And that's a good way to talk about kind of the role-playing element. Like if you got, you know, slashed in the side and are wounded, that would probably be a major consequence, a major condition. But it might not apply to every obstacle test that you make. Like if you uh, were trying to um, make an argument or give a speech on the battlefield or something like that. It might apply or it might not apply, and the player gets to decide whether or not it applies. Anyway, that's fate points. Persona points um, work uh, a little similarly in the sense that they are also a narrative metacurrency. Um, fate and persona work a little differently for advancement. Advancement in Hot Circle is totally based on how much... Um, fate or persona you spend, which is, is cool. It means it's a lot less complicated than Burning Wheel's table of successes and failures at different difficulties and all that sort of stuff. Um, the result of Burning Wheel's table is similar, that you have to spend Artha in order to advance. But the actual in-practice keeping track, I find, is... Um, or from reading it, it reads to me like it is much sort of overly complicated and over-engineered relative to something like this, where this is really simple. You spend persona points on a life path test, and eventually, if you spend enough of them, you get to upgrade the rating of the life path for obstacle tests. You spend fate points on life path tests, and you get to turn a temporary asset into a permanent asset. Um, and it's real simple like that. So you spend, if you have a life path at 3d6, and you send spic at 3d6 and you spend six persona points on it over the course of play it advances to a 4d6 life path if you um learn something about a subject and you have spent six fate points on said life paths um uh tests ability tests then you get to turn that knowledge into a wise. So instead of, for instance, I know that dragons are greedy, you turn it into dragon wise and just know a lot about dragons, and that'll help you with other tests. Um, advancement, there's also the trait vote, like in Burning Wheel, the idea that you go around the table and you talk about which traits were role-played and which weren't, and if there are um, essentially traits that are not on the character sheet that were role-played, what should um, those be? Basically, um, adding traits or subtracting traits based on the opinions of all of the players, including the game master, but especially the player playing the character to um, refine or to represent character growth through play. Um, there's also a thing about adding new life paths, which I really like. Um, basically, what it says is if there's a time jump of five to 10 years, you can add another life path to a character. And this just becomes, you know, an extra thing that the character can um, 
can use to solve problems. And I think that's really cool because that sort of ties into one of my um, plans for originally it was originally it was sort of a plan for Pendragon and then I read Burning Wheel and thought Burning Wheel would work really well and then I read Hot Circle and thought oh man Hot Circle would work just as well as Burning Wheel but it would be a lot simpler to actually run um, and I'm going to talk about that uh, another time but this um, anyway then we have a running the game section the running the game section is pretty short but it gives I think a good overview of the sort of stuff that you should keep in mind and a pretty good um, play structure, right? The, the, you know, we do this thing and then we do this thing and then we do this thing, especially the end of session structure that you um, award persona points at the end, you set the beliefs and instincts, you do the trait vote if a significant milestone is cast and passed, and then you do set voluntary conditions and do a little bit of an epilogue for each voluntary condition if that is going to be a factor. Um, and that's one of the things, Burning Wheel itself, Hot Circle less so, but Burning Wheel itself is a very um, structured game in the sense that there is a lot of um, kind of procedure that you follow. If you are familiar with Burning Wheel, you will notice that there's some stuff that isn't in Hot Circle. Particularly, there's no um, extended conflict um, extended conflict resolution in the sense of um, the fight rules or the duel of wits rules. Those two are big parts of playing Burning Wheel that are not in here at all. You could sort of emulate them with the linked tests, but not, not a whole lot. Um, you could probably build something that uses those um, rules if you wanted to hack burn, if you wanted to hack hot circle into being more like burning wheel you could put you could probably hack in something like fight or duel of wits and create a sort of simplified system especially using something like um the way mouse guard or torchbearer does those things um that would probably be pretty easy to adapt in, in all honesty um to create a sort of extended task resolution um solution Anyway, um, but that is Hot Circle. Hot Circle RPG, a fun little hack. And did I mention that it's free on DriveThruRPG? So you can go and download it yourself today. Um, get yourself a copy of Hot Circle and um, use it to run games. So yeah, um, it's pretty cool. I like a lot of stuff about it. Um, I think it helps that I have read Burning Wheel and that I found it, it in a lot of ways this is sort of tied to what I want from games because I read Burning Wheel and thought man there's a lot of really cool stuff here but there's also an element of it that I think is is just um very crunchy that actual play requires a lot of I suspect a lot of looking up rules. It'd be really hard to keep everything in your head that you need to keep in your head for Burning Wheel itself. Hot Circle simplifies a lot of those things, makes it, in my opinion, much easier to actually play and to still get the advantage of having things like characters with explicit beliefs and instincts um, and all that sort of stuff. It comes at a cost in the sense that you're, um, you know, you don't have 
the the big long list of life paths that gives you a lot of implied setting and you don't have um fight or duel of wits or i think there's one more um that i'm forgetting or, you know, zooming zooming way, way into a single scene. You don't have anything like that here, although you could build it, like I said. You'd probably build it pretty easily. Um, and I, if I were building it, I would use rules from Mouse Guard to, um, to design a, uh, a, a conflict resolution, uh, a high-intensity conflict resolution system. Anyway, um, but that is hot circle um yeah it's a it's really cool and it's really short like i said so it's only um if you don't include the table of contents and the index and the character sheet that's on the back page and the cover it's only 24 pages long and each of those pages is only really a half page um because there's as as you can see on the youtube um basically the each landscape page is divided into two different um, zine style pages. So it's very short, very easy to read. Like I said, it's free, so why wouldn't you get yourself a copy and read it and um, think about running it? And if you do run it, um, or if you want to play in my game of it, let me know and um, we'll figure out how to make that happen. I'd love to hear about how it actually plays at the table. Um, I suspect it plays pretty well just based on reading it because I feel like there's a lot, there's kind of a lot there in a small package, if that makes sense. Sort of like something like um, Barbarians of Lemuria almost where the core rules are really pretty simple and pretty um, straightforward. You don't need a whole lot more than just the core rules to run things. Um, but then there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of added stuff with Barbarians of Lemuria that you get. Um, anyway, that is, like I said, that is Hot Circle RPG. Um, and that is, I think, going to be it for today. So thank you for listening to my overview of Hot Circle. Um, Casper... Deuterek, if you end up listening to this, um, please leave a comment or a voice message or something and let me know, because um, that would be really cool. And yeah, um, I think I'm going to end it here. So if you want to get in contact with me, if you're on Anchor, you can leave a voice message on Anchor, anchor.fm slash Pelham's Wasteland. If you're on YouTube, you can obviously leave a comment at the... Um, comments section below and i will respond to you if you want to get in contact with me on twitter i am at cows from powis if you want to get in contact with me on discord i'm on a number of different discords and you can probably find me there um i think that is everything so i've been arlen walker i've been live from pelham's wasteland and i will see you next time take care everybody